Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. Want to know how to grow tomatoes? What are the best varieties to plant? Want to learn how to breed your own? Our guest this week is farmer and tomato breeder Fred Hempel. Fred farms and breeds gourmet vegetables in Northern California. His focus is on tomatoes, peppers, squash, herbs, and edible flowers. And now my conversation with Fred Hempel. Thank you, Fred, for joining us on the Root Simple podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I thought we'd begin just by asking what your background is and how you got your start in uh, breeding tomatoes. Well, I have a background in um, as a biologist. I have a, a uh, actually a PhD in in plant developmental biology, and and when, when I was uh, doing my dissertation, it was it was on uh, flowering time, so it was on and and sort of flowering mechanisms. How do plants read the environment and convert? Sort of change what they're doing and convert over to flowering. Um, so so I have a sort of a a strong background in basic plant biology. I don't have any formal training in plant breeding, but certainly my uh, degrees have uh, have taught me enough genetics so that I can, you know, so that that's typically not a problem. I uh, was initially working a, a biotech company, and at the same time I was um, breeding on the side as a more or less a hobby. And uh, as soon as things started to get to the point where I felt like I had varieties that were competitive with some of the better varieties out there, um, I decided to take a crack at breeding. And in taking a crack at breeding, I the approach I took was one where I decided that I would farm and breed in the context of a small organic farm. And so we do have a farm that is uh, we, we we produce tomatoes and uh, squash and some beans and uh, and mustards and, and and flowers just a few things the, the core are the, the tomatoes and then the other crops are uh, chosen because we like them but they also have to not detract from our tomato growing and breeding um, and in some cases because tomatoes get diseases. Um, we've chosen our cover crops uh, to be good, you know, rotational crops with tomatoes. So, you know, we we started farming. We started amateur breeding about 2001, and then started farming in 2006. And and at that point, you know, the breeding was um, we we started taking the breeding more seriously. Now, farming is a tough gig, and so there were some years when the breeding we didn't get as much breeding done as possible because we were, you know, stuck with crazy farming obligations. But um, we've, over time, learned how to how to balance things and scale them so that we can make progress breeding at the same time, uh, you know, farm as well. So so that's, I know that's a, you know, probably a pretty long answer to a short question. But <laughs> right, right, that's right. That's our background. Right. Now, uh, I've heard you speak at the Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa, and both times you said very provocatively, I thought, that you thought there was no such thing as an heirloom tomato. What did you mean by that? 
Well, I guess this is coming from me as a geneticist, um, and it's also using the definition that heirlooms are passed from generation to generation, and that's human generation. And so in in sort of the the community of tomato growers, um, a lot of people sort of have settled on 50 years as 50 years old as the um, as the time it would take for a variety to become an heirloom uh, because, you know, that would allow it to be passed for a couple generations. Now, the problem with, you know, applying an, a definition of heirloom uh, to a to an organism that reproduces is that, you know, over time, genetic changes occur and they accumulate. And um, every, every year you're going to have... In most cases, small increment, incremental and not so uh, evident changes occurring. But um, realistically, the tomato, you know, time doesn't stand still. The, the, there, you don't have a, uh, the, you don't have a, an identity, a genetic identity that is uh, static. Basically, um, you know, the genetic material is, um, you know, is is subject to change, is subject to small. Mutations and change, and that's why that's why you know things evolve and change, and and uh, so and it's impossible to stop that. And so, in a sense, my argument is kind of semantic, mm-hmm. in that you know it's impossible to really completely stop and catch something in and preserve it precisely. And I think one of the reasons I try to make this point a lot of the time when I give talks is that I try to make a point that it's very important for seed savers, home gardeners, or anyone who wants to essentially keep a variety and that, that they should realize that, you know, there's going to be some variation that's going to be natural uh, that occurs. Um, and, you know, if they've got 10 plants, the worst thing you can do is, you know, eat all the great tomatoes from the great plants and then say, okay, well, I'll save this plant's not doing real well. I'll save the seeds from that because in reality, the plant that's not doing well could be in a bad environment, but it very well also could have some kind of uh, you know genetic uh, problem that's uh, that's that that for you know growing um, that's occurred and um, you know that's going to be if it's genetic it's going to be passed on and so so in a sense the dynamic nature of genetics informs seed saving and that you always want to save seeds from the from the best plants and the best fruits to uh, ensure that you're not you're not uh, saving material that is. Uh, that has basically become defective. And uh, in some cases, and this is why we have lots of new varieties appearing all the time and not always from, you know, breeding programs and and, uh, professional breeders, but, you know, things crop up that are really, um, you know, may may provide a tomato or a a plant in your garden with with some sort of a change that is uh, actually interesting and desirable and the flavor might be unique and and you might like it compared to the rest of the plants of that variety. So, so in that case, you can actually, you know, move more towards something you like even better if you're kind of paying attention to variability and saving seed based on, you know, based on a sort of a careful eye towards the, the subtle differences that might, and sometimes not subtle differences that might be uh, occurring. What what do you look for when you're selecting seeds to save and to develop varieties? What are the qualities you're looking for? Well, that's what to look for is the it's it's really the the key to well it's 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 a very difficult question because you can get 
if you look for too much, then you can make progress. You're, you're, you may, you may um, not make progress in the areas that are most important to you. And so let me just explain that based on what we look for. And when, when I started breeding tomatoes, um, there were two things that I really decided to focus on. And the first one was stripes. And I focused on stripes because I felt like that was something that could distinguish what I was doing and sort of, um, in a way, uh, cue people into things that we were developing. Now, that doesn't mean that we are the only breeder uh, out there who's working on stripes, but particularly, and a lot more have, have, have jumped in lately. But if you look at the commercial catalogs or even, you know, like the standard catalogs, that like a small... Um, gardeners and small farmers would use like a Johnny's catalog, you know, that, that is really sort of focused on um, best varieties. Then I think one of the things you see is there are not many striped tomatoes in there. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've, we decided to focus on stripes for the aesthetic. And also it's kind of helped us to uh, establish uh, a recognition. Now, the other thing that we decided to focus on was flavor. And um, it's very easy to, everybody says they're focusing on flavor, but it's it's just all too easy, and we've fallen into the trap at times to uh, get distracted and to uh, not really be selecting hard for flavor. And uh, we found in our own breeding that, you know, there have been times when we've got kind of sidetracked and we've really been, in the end, we've really kind of wasted our time because the things we were ending up with just didn't really uh, measure up flavor-wise. And it's uh, it's not trivial to take something that's mediocre flavor-wise and, and make it flavorful. And so one of the things we sort of discovered the first, you know, five to seven years was that since there's so much genetic diversity out there in tomatoes that one could uh, choose from, if you just focus on all the best flavored tomatoes, and start working with them and making crosses between those different varieties, then there's more than enough diversity of, of uh, fruit size and plant shape and, and the subtle di- flavor differences that you uh, can taste sometimes. But as long as you're working with stuff that tastes really, really good, it's, you know, if you cross two excellent flavored varieties, it's almost impossible to get something that doesn't taste good. But if you cross a mediocre variety with an excellent variety, then a very, very small percentage of the things you get out will actually be comparable to excellent. Most of them will fall somewhere in between, and, and, and too many will, will fall down closer to, to mediocre. And this was something that kind of one, of the, one of the reasons why it was good to be farming at this time is that we... Uh, that selling things at the farmer's market really kept us in line with regards to continuing to be focused on flavor because there were times when we would get off the track a little bit, take somebody in the market, people would buy a lot of it because it looked really cool, and then they'd come back and you know never buy that variety again. Mm-hmm. And so we quickly realized that just even as a farm, if we were unless we just wanted to not take the tomatoes that didn't taste very well to the market, we were going to be um, undercutting our own our own brand as a farm um, if we were bringing, uh, you know, sort of projects, genetic projects, breeding projects to the to the farmer's market that were, were not really excellent in terms of flavor. Mm-hmm. So we, we look for flavor, and then 
the other, some of the other things we look for have actually, uh, there are actually things that are, if you're an organic grower and you have disease in your field like we do, if you're just picking from, if you, if you assess flavor and then you pick from the most vigorous plants, then oftentimes you're actually selecting for disease resistance, either general or in some cases even specific. And so we've, we've now that we're more, a little more serious about breeding for disease resistance and actually figuring out what bona fide resistance we have in our different lines, um, you know, we're starting to realize that our, our, in our early work, we were actually breeding for disease resistance, although we had no idea exactly which resistances we were breeding for. But just by growing organically and by growing and by selecting vigorous, healthy, productive plants, that, that we were sort of moving in, the, in a good direction. So, so that's, you know, I, I think vigor would, has been and, you know, would be the, the, the second general kind of selection that we've always made after flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll usually we'll go through the field and uh, we'll, we'll make the first sweep will be one where we kind of look at, we, we identify things that are, you know, that look good, relatively good. If things really look horrible or the plants are horrible, we'll just kind of, in some cases, we'll even just rip them out as we go. And then, and then we'll go back and as much as we can, we'll sample the things that are doing pretty well to very well, and we'll just kind of do do taste tests on those. And then when we figure out which ones really are the best flavor-wise, then we start making choices between ones that are relatively equivalent flavor-wise, and we'll, we'll focus on selecting the, the plants with better vigor. Um, in some cases, we'll find things like these days, if we have two tomatoes in the field that were equivalent, uh, we might also select for shelf life. Hmm. Because uh, one thing that we've discovered as uh, small growers, small farmers, is that if your tomato tastes great, but it it bruises and ripens really quickly, and can't, you can't get it to market, or half of half of the things you get to market are bruised, um, then you're going to lose a lot. Even even if you have something that's that's fabulous in terms of flavor, you you can't charge enough to make up for the loss mm-hmm. uh, due to damage. And so one of the things that I think we've discovered recently that's the most exciting thing uh, in my mind is that is that you can get pretty good pretty good durability and shelf life uh, correlated with extremely high flavor and this is something that I really didn't believe you could do five ten years ago but at this point I've got enough lines of my own that are are very durable can sit on your shelf for a week or two uh, and not you know not start going overripe. And so, uh, you know, that's that's another really critical thing that we sort of, whether we started looking for, you know, later in the game, uh, you know, the last two, three years, we've really been more focused on, on traits like shelf life. So then why are the supermarket tomatoes, they seem to correlate the other way, the more durable they are, the less tasty they are? Well, and I think that that's really, be, it's sort of, because supermarket tomatoes have been bred in a, well, there's, I think there's two reasons. Number one is that they've been bred in a system that's designed to maximize production. And, and flavor has just been sort of, those tomatoes have been uh, just not selected for flavor. And so it was just lost at some point. I don't think that that's something, I used to think that there may be some uh, problems with, combining long shelf life and flavor, but at this point, 
I really don't think that way. So I don't, I don't think that it's something where it's inevitable, but I do think it's something that is, and it's inevitable that you're going to lose flavor in lines if you don't focus on flavor. Um, and, and there are some, some properties associated with, uh, with high production that, that may be, you know, may be associated with less flavor. But I think that's one, one problem is it hasn't been selected for because production has been selected for. But the other problem is that a lot of the worst tasting tomatoes are ones that were developed to be gassed when they're green. Mm. And in that case, if, if you're picking tomatoes before the core starts to ripen, before the interior, the middle starts to ripen, then um, even if you gas with ethylene, which is our, the ripening gas that the, the plant itself uses, and uh, you know the, the Florida tomato industry uses ethylene gas uh, similarly to to cause ripening, but it's sort of a ripening that's only skin deep. It doesn't really it doesn't really get to the core um, in many cases, and that's why when you op- when you cut open into a lot of these supermarket tomatoes that are have been gassed, you know, they're red on the outside, but, but uh, sort of a light pink or even some, in some cases, green in the interior. Mm. And I think that that's the second problem is that they were just picked very early, too mm. early. Now, I think that it's a misnomer that you can't pick tomatoes early because I'm of the feeling that once something is most tomatoes, not all, but most, once they're about quarter ripe, once that core has started to ripen in the interior, that they will ripen just as well and taste just as good off the vine as if you left them on the vine until until they were, you know, getting soft. And I think most people don't know and most farmers wouldn't necessarily tell people because they don't want to know, but it's almost impossible for a small farmer to pick everything completely ripe because there's just too much damage and too much loss associated with that. They, they, you know, any any farm of any size that needs to move some kind of a volume needs needs to pick uh, at least three quarter ripe when things are still relatively firm. Ripeness is really something that's very interesting. Or ripening is very interesting to me. It's much. It's uh, the questions are much more open and much more complex than I used to think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that again, I said is is because we found things that you know kind of that last step to ripening, which is softening. Um, you can you can have that slowed down quite a bit. And have a lot of flavor packed in, packed in uh, a tomato, which is relatively durable. Um, mm. And that's exciting because that means that you know that the supermarket tomatoes can taste better because there there is the opportunity to have things that are relatively durable that need to be shipped over long distances um, and, and still have them taste. Mm-hmm. Now, you also told an interesting story in your lecture about the time that you turned over a breeding project to your son, who I think was about eight at the time. Can you tell that story and what he ended up coming up with? Well, in 2006, which is the year that we really, that I switched from a hobbyist to a, a hobbyist breeder to a, a farmer breeder, my son and daughter had been my main tomato tasters for two or three years before that, since they were four or five. And, uh, and my son decided in 2006, when he was eight, that he, he wanted to be, he wanted to do some crosses too. So I was doing a few crosses every winter. And um, that year, um, I was doing a number that seemed large at the time. Uh, it doesn't seem very large now, but I was doing 16, I had 16 crosses that year. And um, my crosses were all uh, crosses, like I've already described in this uh in this uh, discussion, where I was trying to combine good flavor with 
some other characteristic, either of uh, uh, a, a certain color or uh, a fruit or a certain stature of the plant, um, you know, either dwarf or, or vine. Um, I was, you know, trying to trying to take good flavored varieties and and diversify my, you know, diversify the the collection of tomatoes that I had. Most of my crosses were like that. Um, a great tasting tomato and a tomato that could be anywhere from mediocre to good. I don't think I really crossed many to many pairs of great tasting tomatoes. That wasn't my plan that year because I assumed that the great tasting tomato could pull up the flavor on the other varieties. Well, my son, because he'd been tasting tomatoes with us for you know three years or so, he had some real favorites. And uh, and thinking back. Um, he had four favorite tomatoes, and two of his favorite tomatoes were ones that we had bred. And two of them were other ones that were just, um, you know, out there, other heirloom tomatoes. And um, he decided that he, he wanted to kind of cross off with his favorites. And his favorites were based on just purely on flavor. He wasn't, he wasn't thinking about anything other than the tomatoes he liked to eat best. What happened is that uh, in, in that when we grew the F2 population or the population where all of the traits from the two parents sort of mix and match, um, and you get a variety of new colors and shapes, and even some some differences in sort of the the, the complexity of the flavor. Um, when we looked at those plants in the next summer, and we uh, were you know going down rows and tasting, it was very clear that his plants or his his crosses were producing so many more interesting things. Um, including he, we selected, uh, starting that year, we started selecting for a variety that really is probably our most well-known variety called Blush. And um, Blush is my, you know, was his variety. And we, we selected very hard in that, you know, got our favorite plant or two. I think we may have selected somewhere between one and three plants that had that look in F2. And then we grew, I would guess, four or five rows, maybe four to 500 plants of Blush the various sort of, uh, you know, the various ones that we had that were not, you know, were not genetically uniform yet. And the next year we found, an, you know, one that was extremely, uh, extremely good in terms of flavor. And so what really hit home to me that year was that a lot of what I did in trying to combine different thing, a different flavor with other uh, characteristics, a lot of what I was doing and a lot of that field that I, of, of the crosses that I, you know, the rows that were my crosses were much less interesting. And really, if you, you can kind of say that they were a waste of time compared to Alex's rows, mm-hmm. which in which virtually every plant had tomatoes that tasted great. And then it was just a matter of what kinds of color combinations and shapes and, and were we interested in. And so uh, the thing that I usually say when I give you know a talk about breeding tomatoes or our tomatoes or whatever is that, um, you know, you can probably look at what we, at the tomato varieties that we have and we're working on right now. And, and I would say that 95% of the varieties that we're working with, of the lines that we're working with, um, have, have some sort of a connection to Alex's three crosses that year. And I would say that probably about somewhere between 30 and 40% of the lines that we have uh, that we work with today are influenced by 
and and sort of you can trace back to the lines that I worked on. It doesn't mean that what I did was completely worthless that year, but in terms of efficiency and in terms of you know really finding and moving, finding interesting, flavorful varieties or, or lines and moving forward, you know his Alex's approach of just really focusing on things he that were excellent flavor-wise, in his opinion, that that was, um, there was more than enough diversity that came out of those lines um, to deal with. So, you know, from that point on, we spent a number of years where our, you know, we, we really did not deal with any tomatoes that were not flavorful. We're not, we're not really sort of top 10% flavorful. We break that rule today, and we we break it a little bit because there are some types of disease resistance that we're trying to work into our tomatoes um, that are really important to small growers, large growers, just to anybody and gardeners, anybody who grows tomatoes. And it, it, and in some cases, the the best resistance um, doesn't really come in a great tasting tomato. So so you kind of do have to take a step back, and the work's a little harder. Um, but but for the most part, if we if we can find a great tasting tomato with another trait in it that we really need, or if we need another trait to incorporate it into our lines, like disease, like late bite resistance, which is so important these days. Um, if we need late bite resistance, it's really important for us to go out and not figure out, not just choose a, a variety that has it, but choose a variety, but figure out which of the varieties that have it taste the best. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, even if it takes us an extra, extra, you know, grow out to really figure out which of those varieties to use, um, it's worth it in the long run. Now, if, because um, mostly home gardeners will be listening to this, if home gardeners uh-huh. are interested in doing their own tomato breeding projects, how do you go about that? How many plants do you need? How do you actually cross the plants? What are the mechanics of doing that? Well, the the number of plants you need really... You know, I think in many cases, if you're looking at a formal breeding textbook, um, you know, you'd never want to grow the theoretical number of plants you would <laughs> right. need. Um, it, and one thing I usually say to people who want to breed is that the, the most important part of breeding is not crossing. The most important part of breeding is selecting. Hmm. And um, it's basically recognizing the differences in the tomatoes that you're growing, even within one variety, and selecting for improvements. And the reason is that a lot of times in home gardens, there are inadvertent crosses that are made. And so you may save seed from a Cherokee purple uh, one year, but it may have you know had a it may have had a relatively open flower that was you know that a bee was able to move pollen from another variety nearby. And and in many cases, there is diversity within what one would expect to be sort of uniform seeds. And so recognizing that diversity and sampling it and evaluating it, that's really the place to start. So so I would say, you know, before you and, and I would say the other the other thing one needs to do if they're gonna breed is, you know, you wanna you you wanna figure out what's out there. And you want to sample some of the so a diversity of different tomatoes, ones that you probably haven't tried, different different colors and shapes and sizes that may not be the ones you typically grow, but will kind of uh, give you ideas for what you really might like that you don't know yet. And so once you once you're ready to select, you're ready to pay attention to things. Um, if if you if you want to do more and if you want to move to crossing, then I would say. The best thing to do is to 
uh, well, there are two things you can do. You can go online and you can find uh, tomato crossing diagrams and videos and things like that. But there's nothing like really uh, trying some crosses with someone who knows how to do them. So we we lead breeding uh, uh, workshops in the Bay Area. And over the years, I started out, and we used to talk about all the theory of breeding and how you select and how you keep track of everything. But what I discovered is that the most important thing that people want to know is they want to spend a couple hours actually physically learning how to cross. They don't want to, you know, that that's the thing that they need the most. They need someone to show them when a tomato flower is shedding pollen. And in, in one of the beautiful things about tomatoes and one of the reasons why it's kind of difficult to cross just physically because tomato flowers are... They're not the easiest things in the world to dissect. But one thing that helps is that tomato flowers, before they turn yellow, when they're green, the female portion of the flower, the stigma, which is attached to the ovary, that is ready to receive pollen. So what you can do is you can remove the pollen-bearing structures, the anthers, from that flower. And since they're not shedding pollen yet... Once you get rid of them, then you know that you have a female structure that has not seen pollen because typically the male structures enclose entirely the, um, the, the, the female structures. And so what you can do is remove the male structures. Now, that's much easier said than done. And that's why, you know, having someone tutor you on that is very useful. Mm-hmm. But um, once you get those male structures removed, then you need to go to, usually in our experience, um, if you look along a stem, the first yellow flower is not really shedding a lot of pollen. It's usually the second one that's shedding pollen. But you have to learn how to recognize pollen shedding. And actually, you can, when you look closely, you can pull off a male structure and see a poof of pollen. And you can actually tell which flowers are are uh, actually shedding pollen. And so you need to find one of those. So you go to the other plant. So you, you would dissect a flower, a young flower, which has a female ready to be pollinated from one plant. And then you go to another plant and you'd find flowers that are a little bit older that are shedding pollen. And then you physically have to go and, and put them on that, on that stigma, on that female structure. Now, the other key thing that we show people that is... It always surprises me, but it's very eye-opening, is that in some ways the dissection is all about the tools. And there are, and there is a, uh, and you need jeweler's forceps. So these are forceps that a jeweler would use to handle delicately, um, you know, small items. Mm -hmm. And so the the brand name that's out there that's sort of standard is Dumont, D-U-M-O-N-T, and you use Dumont number fours. Because number threes, they get finer and finer as the numbers go higher. Number five is too fine. Number five will basically cut and shred everything. And it's just, uh, it's almost like working with a little uh, knife. Mm -hmm. But um, number four is just right for being fine enough, but not just shredding everything on contact. Now, number threes are too blunt. And, and many people, when they come to us to try to learn how to, you know, learn how to do pollinations, cross-pollinations, they realize that they've been working with some, you know, 
some uh, uh, you know essentially tweezers that are are used for other things and are not as fine and and not the type that you would need to actually uh, uh, go in and do a good job uh, taking structures off of the flowers that you want to pollinate. Mm-hmm. So um, you know to you can see all this online and uh, and uh, you know kind of trial and error it. One of the problems with learning how to do cross pollinations is that there's no way to know whether you whether you did a good job or not until about five to seven days later when the fruit either starts expanding or falls off mm. the plant. Um, so so it's something that is you know it's not trivial. It takes some time to learn, but once you once you learn how to cross just physically, um, and again it's it's taking pollen from one plant using it as a male plant and then crossing it to a different female and that's the way in that way you can control the uh, you can control the pollinations now the other thing you can do if you don't want to get into all this is if you want to get naturally crossed seeds one of the things that you would do is you would uh, you would save seeds from the youngest flowers on the plant because those typically have the most open flowers and are most likely to have cross pollination uh, having occurred, and mm. so you know there are some tricks to to getting to getting the bees to do your work for you uh, if you don't want to involve yourself with the you know with the the, the specifics of, of learning how to cross pollinate yourself. Now, what about general tips for home gardeners in terms of just growing tomatoes, uh, soil preparation, watering? Uh, what would you say to uh, to us home gardeners? Well, I would say that with regards to watering. You want to water deeply and infrequently, and uh, overwatered. I mean, underwatering, and you're you know you're just you know, there's a problem with underwatering that is the plants you risk death or just small sickly plants. But a lot of people who are really serious gardeners, the mistakes they're going to make are overwatering. And um, there's a few things that can happen with overwatering. And the first thing is that it's it promotes disease. So if you're watering too much, especially if you're watering late in the day and your plants are staying wet, fungal diseases, leaf diseases are much more likely to occur. And the second thing is, if you water too much, you can destroy the flavor of the the fruits. And that's one of the reasons why we water infrequently, like in our fields. And you would do this um, if you had tomatoes in the ground at your home as well. Um, You know, you water maybe once a week, depending on the weather. If it's really dry, you might have to water more. If it's been rainy or foggy, then you would you know, you maybe can go two weeks, but you have to just keep keep an eye on the plants and the fruits will sweeten up much better if you're if if they are, you know, on the you know, on the dry side. And but they need to be watered well when they're young so that they can really develop a good root system. If they have a good root system then you can kind of wean them off of the heavier watering later in their life and, and the fruits will be much better. Now one thing we do in the field is we don't water if we we try to water after we pick, because after we pick, well, because if we water right before we pick, then the the fruits will uh, the flavor gets diluted. Um, the fruits take up water, and especially if the plants have been a little bit dry, the fruits can really they can split uh, and also taste much worse if you're if you water right before. So what we do is we water we we pick first and water uh, water afterwards. And then typically we don't pick for three or four more days after that. Um, and, and this way we get relatively high quality 
uh, consistent fruit. And what about soil preparation? Um, fertilizer, how do you compost? Uh, what, what do you recommend, again, for mostly for the home gardener? Well, we, you know, we, we've sort of downsized our farm recently, and so we're, I think compost is great because, you know, it's not trivial to spread a lot of compost on a farm, but we are starting to realize that it's better to grow half the beds well composted than it is to try to grow more and more uh, and, and not compost. I think compost really, it not only, um, we, we just spread it over the top. Uh, we, we, we work a little bit in before planting into the row, and then we also put it over the, you know, put it at the base of the plant. And, and uh, particularly in cases like our own, and I know many home gardeners uh, in many parts of the country struggle with clay-like soils. Mm-hmm. If you have some compost on the surface, sort of acting as a combination of compost and mulch, the structure of the soil is much, much better. You don't get the cracking. Uh, the, the soil doesn't, it, you know, is much, much less likely to kind of bind together when it becomes warm and hot. And so compost really increases the increases the ability of the plant to actually put roots up close to the surface and use more of the soil, sort of access more of the soil uh, for nutrients. Um, so we, you know, we're, I'm a strong believer in, in compost because it not only does it provide nutrients, but it also provides, um, it provides better, much better soil structure. And this is a thing where, you know, just, just tips for growers. I would say if you can, if you can grow in the ground, grow in the ground because, again, the increasing flavor in tomatoes is much easier to do if the system, if the root system is extensive. And also the ground can kind of slow, lose water more slowly than a pot. Pots can really dry out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, if it's really hot, it's almost impossible to not overwater your plants because they just have to be watered almost all the time, you know, every few hours. When, mm-hmm when it's hot. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to grow in pots or if you can only grow in pots, I think that one of the, the, the smaller fruited tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, they're much less affected by overwatering. If you, There are a lot of good flavored cherry tomatoes that, you know, really, really don't taste, uh, don't don't take a hit in flavor, um, you know, if they're a little overwatered. So so I would say cherry tomatoes in, in pots. And then don't be afraid to just you know, if they're getting too big for the pot and they're drying it out within a few hours, I mean, you can try to be out there every few hours and risk losing the whole plant. But, you know, there's sometimes when if you're in a pot, you just have to, you know, you just have to top a third of the, take a third of the top of the plant off and keep it manageable because uh, there's just too much plant for the, too much plant for the root mm-hmm. to really mm-hmm. uh, effectively uh, feed. And so, so those are some of the, the, the general tips that we've, sort of stumbled into ourselves just on our own experience. Now, speaking of roots, do you have any opinions on grafting tomatoes? Well, I think grafting is critically important if you're in a high, if, you, if you're in a place with high amounts of soil disease and you want to grow varieties that are, in many cases, some of the heirloom varieties that are susceptible, you know, one of the only ways around it is to, is to graft or buy grafted plants mm-hmm. um, because the roots on the the roots from the plant used or the plant used for the rootstock can keep the plant healthy while the plant that's on top that's grafted on, which could be a great tasting heirloom, is producing fruits that are really consistent with that heirloom. 
So it's a. I think grafting is is really key when you are, you know, when you're in a moderate disease area where you're going to take a hit uh, if you don't graft, or you're going to be limited in the varieties that you can grow. And um, there's also, I think, the other place that grafting seems to be sort of widely adopted is in is in uh, greenhouse situations. And one of the reasons there is that there there can be a bump in production. And uh, but if you're in a home greenhouse and you're using soil, which is uh, you know you're growing in bags or something, and the soil is relatively disease free, you know, for most of us, the amount of you know the ten percent or the, even at the 15% potential growth increase doesn't really justify the cost, especially if we're doing it ourselves. And, and also the, the plants are, can be pretty expensive if you're not buying a whole tray of them for a field or something. So, mm-hmm. so I would say that the, the increased production you can get out of grafted plants is highly significant if you're running a greenhouse and you've got to balance a high overhead with production, and it's really important to that 10% can be the difference between a decent margin and, and no margin at all. Mm. But for most home gardeners growing indoors, you know, I think that there are other ways or growing in, in soil that's not full of disease, that there are other ways to, other things to focus on that are just, you know, probably do just as well as, as really um, fooling around with grafting. Uh, but disease, disease is the, is the one place where grafting um, can really solve problems. Now, if people want to get uh, some of your varieties, home gardeners, where can they find them? And do you have uh, some favorites or uh, some recommendations of things that you've bred? Well, the variety that I was talking about earlier that I think still is um, sort of a favorite out there and probably our most of variety is it's called Blush. And Blush is available. Um, it's available many, many places. It's available from, from Johnny's and it's available from... Uh, Baker Creek and and uh, it's it's available from Totally Tomatoes and you know most most all the usual suspects who sell tomato seeds will sell blush. We've worked with Johnny's very closely and released varieties with them. Um, so their Johnny's uh, selected seeds is a good place to go uh, for the diversity, the complete diversity of all of our cherries. And you know many of the cherries are you know there are two to three in this catalog or that catalog. Johnny's has has them all. Now, the one place to go that if you were interested in things that, you know, are not really widely distributed at this point, and we have a couple of gourmet paste tomatoes and then a couple of uh, a couple of uh, gourmet beefsteaks, striped beefsteaks that we've bred. And um, one of those is called Orange Jazz. And I think Orange Jazz is just a phenomenal tomato. And um, that's one that I would, you know, if you're looking for something unique in a beefsteak with stripes, then Orange Jazz is the one that I'm trying to get people to try this year. And it's, I think it's available at a couple other places. Um, we do have a seed wholesaler that is selling seed for it, but um, it's also available. The, all of the new things that we have, and, and including some of the unique uh, varieties of vegetables that we grow on our farm that aren't bred by us, but are really not available elsewhere. Um, some of them are from Ethiopia, Ethiopian peppers and greens and things. There's the Artisan Seeds website, and it's just www.growartisan.com. 
But if you just Google artisan seeds, then the, the website will come up right on top. And so, so the newer stuff, the things that other people don't have, our website, and, and otherwise, just uh, look for artisan tomatoes because most people identify tomatoes that we've bred as artisan tomatoes. Got it. I'm sorry. Is the Artisan Seeds website, is that your website or is that another? Yes, that's our oh, that's website. that's your website. So, okay, right. Yes, that's our website, and um, that's essentially our business, um, our farm business, essentially does, we, we do breeding business as artisan seeds. Got it. Um, our farm name is just uh, a... A silly uh, Italian name. Nobody knows what it means. Yeah, how do you so, pronounce that? Well, it's Bayanichia, uh-huh. and it, it means bay niche. And um, when we first got into the breeding business as well as the growing business, we were looking particularly for things that grew really well in the Bay Area. Um, since then, we've sort of we've moved to a warmer site in the outskirts of the Bay, which mm-hmm. is you know more typical of, of the Central Valley. You know, warm, hot summers. And so the name doesn't the name for our farm means a little less than it used to. But but right. artisan seeds is something that uh, you know is is easier to spell and recognize, and that's that's how we do business when we breed. Got it. All right. And if people are in the Bay Area, they can buy your tomatoes too. Is that right? Or? Well, so we also have an artisan seeds Facebook page, and again, if you just type artisan seeds into the Facebook search. You can find us there, and um, we we let people know when we have seedlings available for sale at the farm. So we only we used to sell uh, at the farmers market. We used to we used to sell seedlings to other people, you know, kind of wholesale. We don't do that anymore. We 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 always plant some extras, and but we only sell we only sell things at the farm site in 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 actually in. Uh, Typically, only in very late April and May, and and if you're interested in buying tomatoes or pepper seedlings, unique tomatoes or pepper seedlings, then uh, then our you know following us on Facebook is a is a good way to go. And then you can also you know ask us questions on Facebook, and we'll respond and let you know. You know if we're if we've neglected to put up you know when we're going to have our first sale, we can probably tell you. Excellent. Well, uh, thank Fred. I really want to thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks, Eric, for having me. I really appreciate uh, the time. That was Fred Hempel. You can buy some of his tomato seed varieties through Artisan Seeds and through Johnny's Seeds. We have links to Fred's websites in the show notes for this podcast on rootsimple.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have the podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website, which is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.